From the summer of 1604, there's evidence that a Catholic plot was forming in England. But was it a gunpowder plot intended to blow up King and Parliament? Well, there's nothing in the reliable historical records that says so. So what was it? Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, let's see what happens. Most accounts of the gunpowder plot closely follow the account the government put out late in 1605. And as we've seen, there's no reason at all to take this account seriously as historical evidence. Instead, there's every reason to suppose the story we all know was created by Chief Minister Robert Cecil. The most likely reason it was concocted, as we saw last time at the History Café, was to terrorise the Parliament of 1605 into voting through the government's programme of taxes which, astonishingly, the last Parliament in early 1604 had angrily refused to do, leaving the King almost penniless and furious with Cecil. Fabricating a plot by Catholic terrorists would also help ensure that the Catholics got no more concessions from King James I, who was at that time deeply influenced by his pro-Catholic aristocratic friends at court. Now, the official account says that the gunpowder plot started at a Westminster tavern on the 20th of May 1604. For a long list of reasons, we've already seen that that's unlikely. But having got the plot underway, the official account now has no choice but to come up with something for the plotters to be doing for the next 18 months, until 5th of November 1605, when Guy Fawkes was arrested. Well, Cecil's official government account maintains that on the 11th of December 1604, the plotters got back together for the first time since their meeting at the Duck and Drake, 20th of May that year. They assembled in the house that one of them, Thomas Percy, remember he was now one of the king's bodyguards, had rented back at the end of May. It stood right next to the Houses of Parliament. In fact, it had a door straight into the House of Lords. This time, the account goes on, the plotters set about excavating a tunnel, quotes, under the little entry to the wall of the Parliament House. Now, the tunnel story is perhaps the most enjoyably laughable invention the government came up with, as we'll see. According to the so-called confession of Thomas Winter, one of the more unreliable sources, as we've discovered, because it was extracted at the very least by the believable threat of torture, according to this confession, the plotters dug away in their garden next to the House of Lords and underpropped their tunnel as they went with timber. At this stage, Parliament was scheduled to meet in February 1605. But by that time, according to Guy Fawkes' confession, perhaps the most notoriously unreliable document in English history since it was definitely extracted under torture. In February, the plotters were still digging. They discovered, or so the government account goes, that the foundations of the House of Lords were rather thick, nine feet thick in fact. And by the time Parliament should have met, they were only halfway through. They were saved, however, when Parliament was suddenly prorogued until October. So they breathed a sigh of relief, mopped their collective brow and kept on digging away. 
Winter's confession explains that they came in late at night, there were now seven of them, including Guy Fawkes, and were never seen. Fawkes's confession says that he stood guard. Apparently they all slept in the little upstairs room of their house next apartment, uh, sharing its single bed. All we seven lay in the house and had shot and powder, being resolved to die in that place before we should yield or be taken. Now, you may remember that the downstairs of this house was occupied by a porter called Gideon Gibbons and his wife. Even according to the government's account, however, neither Mr Gibbons nor his wife ever noticed the seven men coming and going, digging away outside their door and sharing a single bed upstairs. Seven men digging away and then sharing a bed? Didn't anyone notice Snow White keeping house for them? The tunnel story is also described in the account of a Jesuit, Father Tesamond, which we've already seen to be of doubtful reliability since it's trying to shift all blame away from the Jesuits and onto the plotters, who by then had all been executed. Much of Tesamond's account is lifted from the government's own. But Tesamond spices it up with some colourful details of his own which we couldn't resist. He says they erected a shed over the tunnel, something Mr and Mrs Gibbons also somehow failed to notice. The plotters then emptied the earth from this outhouse at night, spreading it over the garden, covering it with greenery and grass. It's like a scene from wartime films, as prisoners of war escape from a Nazi prison camp. The tunnel, says Tesamond, was always filling with water from the river. But, says Tesmond, digging all day, they kept up their energy with hard-boiled eggs. Winter, uh, who you may remember, says they only dug at night, also admits to meat pies. Uh, even so, by the 25th of March 1605, they had still not got through those foundations. Now, it's a great story, and many books repeat it, but there's not a shred of reliable evidence that it's true. government seems to have invented a fairy tale that seven Catholic gentlemen spent three months trying to dig a tunnel under Parliament. It's plainly an invention. Cecil's intelligences were able to track down witnesses willing to testify that certain individuals among the plotters had stayed and met at other houses in London. But even though there were bakers, wine merchants, a coal merchant and a tavern in the same block as the plotter's house, and even though at the time Westminster was little more than a very large single street village and crawling, as we shall see with Cecil's informants, not one person before, during or after the conspiracy ever reported seeing any of the conspirators there except Guy Fawkes nor did anyone apparently notice the tunnel opening under the little entry to the wall of the Parliament House, or the earth, or any of the foundation stones dug up during 90 man-weeks of labour. Nor did the government ever take anyone to see the remains of the tunnel to prove that the story was true once the plot had been discovered. Now, the tunnel, as it's described in the government account, would have ended underneath a ground-floor storeroom, which was used to store wood and coal, and was itself underneath the House of Lords. But, well, leaving aside the obvious and much simpler possibility of launching an explosion from Percy's upstairs room itself, just a door's breadth away from the House of Lords, there was an even simpler solution, and one that would have made a much more effective explosion than a tunnel. The storeroom, directly under the Lords itself, was for hire. 
With a little negotiation, the plotters could have put their gunpowder there. Uh, but according to Guy Fawkes' confession, the diggers, despite their many weeks of labour in the garden outside Parliament, didn't notice the cellar right next to their house. Uh, that is, until they heard coals being removed from it in March 1605. So finally, on the 25th of March 1605, they gave up the back-breaking tunnel and took a lease on the cellar. Phew. Antonia Fraser's wonderfully readable book on the gunpowder plot initially raises some doubts about the reliability of evidence procured through torture, but then she mostly follows the government account without asking too many questions. But even Fraser concludes that the whole digging story must be a government fabrication. The notion of six well-to-do 17th century gentlemen labouring underground over a period of weeks on hard rations silently importing and constructing a do-it-yourself framework of timber support and sharing a single bed while Guy Fawkes stood guard and nobody noticed, even the couple who lived downstairs, would be laughable if it weren't taken so seriously by so many. Of course Cecil needed to come up with something to occupy the plotters in the long months after May 1604 and the tunnel was, well, a colourful image. It was a great image. The plotters could be luridly paraded in Parliament as miners. It's a name that recalled the hellish image of medieval tunnellers who undermined castles and set underground fires at Pigfat and brought their towers tumbling down. The most significant thing about the tunnel for us, as historians, is that it serves to discredit even further the whole government account and that of the Jesuit Father Tesman too. So what were the plotters up to that autumn and winter of 1604 and the spring of 1605? The government account claims that the plotters spent the winter of 1604 and the spring of 1605 digging a tunnel under the House of Parliament. But we've come to the conclusion that that's just fanciful. So what were they doing? In the peace treaty signed between England and Spain in August 1604, about the only concession the Spanish gained for English Catholics was that they should be allowed to sign up for an English regiment in the Spanish army. Hmm. They would be joining the Spanish fight against Protestant rebels in the Netherlands. You can imagine Robert Cecil quietly rubbing his hands that it was a a fine way to get rid of troublesome young Catholics, sending them abroad to work off their anger. They might even get killed. Now, historian Mark Nichols has discovered that, according to government records at any rate, one of the plotters, Robert Catesby, probably did decide to join the Spanish army at this time. In 1605, reports were coming in that Catesby was trying to get himself into the English regiment and was trying to get a relative of another plotter, Thomas Percy, appointed as its commander. Antonia Fraser has a story that Catesby asked a wealthy relative, Ambrose Rookwood, to procure gunpowder for the regiment to use. Among the Spanish documents, there's also evidence that a third plotter, Thomas Winter, the man who did or did not sign the confession he supposedly wrote, also applied to join the English regiment fighting with the Catholic Spanish against the Dutch Protestants in March 1605. Among the English state papers, historian Godfrey Anstruther discovered an account sent in by one of Cecil's informants, an intelligencer called William Turner. Turner says that sometime in April or May 1605, he met Guy Fawkes, also in the Netherlands. Fawkes, apparently, told him about plans for a Spanish army to invade England, spearheaded by the English regiment, 
with some Spanish reinforcements and 300 horsemen waiting in England. Well, in the light of the decisions we've seen taken in Valladolid in Spain in 1604, that we saw in episode two of this series, that there was neither Spanish money nor interest in invading England, Turner's story seems unlikely. Other evidence suggests that Turner, like other intelligencers, was an unreliable witness, not to mention treacherous. But the account is dated September 1605, before Fawkes' name was widely known. And it seems unlikely that Turner would invent the whole story if Fawkes was still posing as Thomas Percy's servant John Johnson and living in Westminster. For what it's worth, even the King's book, the official government account, agrees that Fawkes went to Flanders at this time. So all this still rather flimsy evidence seems to agree that some at least of the little group of Catholic gentlemen who were eventually accused of the gunpowder plot spent much of 1605 in the Netherlands fighting for the Spanish or at least intending to do so. There they may or may not have dreamt of getting renewed Spanish backing for an invasion. If they did, they didn't get anywhere. Of course, it's possible that all this talk about going to join the Spanish army was just a cover for raising horses and gunpowder for a rising in England. Which brings us to perhaps the biggest unasked question about the gunpowder plot, the most important of the context that historians of the plot don't seem to consider. Just what would we expect a Catholic rising in England to have looked like in 1605? If it wasn't some harebrained scheme to wait around under Parliament with a pile of rotting gunpowder, on the unlikely chance that the king and all his councillors might one day all show up at the same time, just what would it be like? One more context that books on the gunpowder plot entirely fail to examine is the long history of other early modern plots and rebellions. Now here we are, back on solid historical ground, doing the correct thing and trying to get the gunpowder plot into its proper setting. Oh, it's like going outside for a breath of fresh air. We know a great deal about plots and risings at this time. In fact, with a bit of luck, we can use what we know about other plots and risings to make a pretty decent guess at what might have been going on in 1604 and 1605. It's a big subject. There had... To go no further back, been literally dozens of rebellions since Jack Cade sparked the unsettling of Henry VI in 1450. Conventionally, rebellions are said to have bedeviled 15th and early 16th century England and to have died out after 1569, as the Elizabethan regime established its control. In fact, it's much more helpful to separate these rebellions into three different phases. In the second half of the 15th century, rebellions were largely a response to poor government and were almost always spearheaded by nobility looking to get rid of the current lot of councillors and put themselves in power. These overlap from 1489 to 1525 with a second, short series of more popular rebellions, this time over Tudor taxes. Then there's a third phase, also mostly of largely popular rebellions, which broke out between 1536 and 1569 as a consequence of Henry VIII's Reformation and the controversial, sometimes chaotic religious changes that followed. And we should finally add in the Earl of Essex's rising in 1601. This was an archaic, noble-led afterthought, aimed, like the old rebellions of the 15th century, at getting rid of the councillors around the monarch. Essex wanted to get rid of Robert Cecil in particular. Simplifying a complex subject, there are a number of strands that run through most of these episodes. Rebellions usually break out away from London, often in 
Kent, Cornwall, East Anglia or the North where it was possible to establish a base and make demands. Two, they never directly criticised the monarch. Instead, they blamed the king or queen's evil counsellors. But only in Cade's case, way back in 1450, does one of the king's counsellors actually come to a grisly end. Nobody in these plots ever contemplates mass murder, slaughtering everyone, as in blowing up the king and the commons, because that would have left England ungovernable. The point is that early modern England had no national army, police force or civil service, and governance absolutely depended on winning the cooperation of thousands of landowners. You needed leaders, local leaders, who were established, wealthy and widely respected or feared in the localities, or you faced chaos. So risings were all about persuading the men in power to give concessions, not about killing them. And if you were leading a rising, you made sure you were usually very careful to treat the king or queen with respect. Among the aristocratic rebellions in the second half of the 15th century, what are traditionally and rather misleadingly called the Wars of the Roses, there were some attempts at unseating God's anointed monarch, and we'll take a look at them another time at the History Café. Kicking out the king was very much the preserve of the nobility and was only possible if they could conjure up not only aristocratic support, but also some arguably legitimate and viable alternative candidate and persuade everyone there was a good reason to change, such as replacing the insane Henry VI with Richard of York, or then in 1461 with Edward of York, his son, or putting in Henry Tudor to replace the alleged usurper Richard III in 1485, and so on down to putting in the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots, descended from Henry VII, in place of the Protestant, and in some people's eyes, illegitimate Elizabeth, during the so-called revolt of the Northern Earls in 1569. Killing royal children was a total disaster. Only Richard III apparently did it when he allegedly had the two princes in the tower murdered, one of whom was the uncrowned 12-year-old King Edward V. As audiences in the 1590s and 1600s were pointedly being reminded in Shakespeare's Richard III, this heinous act completely destroyed him. What is striking about the gunpowder plot, as it's described in the official king's book, blowing up the king, his family and hundreds of the king's leading peers and gentry, is that it would have fallen totally outside this long pattern of rebellions. The gunpowder plot, as described by the government and by most historians ever since, doesn't look like any of the rebellions and risings that had occurred over the previous century and a half. It wasn't based in the provinces, but in Westminster. It wasn't led by the nobility or major landowners, but by a small cast of minor, not to say debt-ridden, squires. It supposedly aimed not only to assassinate the king and queen, but also at least one of their sons, it would even, we're told, have swept away the whole of the ruling cadre. In the light of the long list of historical precedents we've seen, this was all extraordinarily unlikely. Neither Cecil nor his torturing sidekick at the Tower of London, William Wade, was ever able to make any suggestion about how the plotters planned to establish not only a new monarch, but also a completely new regime in the wake of the explosion. In Fawkes' supposed confession of the 5th of November 1605, he says he had no idea who would occupy the throne. 
It's only in the official government king's book that Fawkes claims that they would have made James's 11-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, queen. But not a word is said about how her unexpected accession could ever have been justified, especially since even the Pope had given her father James his blessing. Not to mention the supremely tricky business of maintaining strong and stable government during seven years of royal minority until the new Queen was old enough to rule. Nor was anything ever said about replacing the peers, judges, bishops, councillors and local power brokers who would have been blown up. Cecil and his intelligencers knew perfectly well that a rebellion, to have any credibility, needed to look as though it had backing from major landowners, preferably aristocrats. So, as we shall see, they arrested three minor peers on the most transparently trumped-up charges. They obviously had nothing to do with the plot. The only major noble Cecil and Wade ever managed to blacken with the gunpowder plot was the mercurial Earl of Northumberland, and then on the thinnest of grounds. They even found it impossible to prove he wouldn't have been sitting in the House of Lords when it was blown up on the 5th of November. He was the worst possible candidate to establish a new regime in the wake of the mass slaughter. He was, writes historian Mark Nichols, shy, quick-tempered, laboured, isolated and gullible. As a Privy Councillor since 1603, he'd inspired the minimum of confidence. On one occasion, he spat in the face of another courtier and got himself exiled to Croydon. <laughs> he could by no stretch, even of Cecil's propaganda, ever have been seriously proposed as the leader of a new post-apocalyptic kingdom. From the long perspective of early modern rebellions, a Catholic plot to destroy the monarch, his children and the leading nobility and gentry in 1605 without any material plan for a legitimate new monarch, support from a major landowner or a substantial new basis for central and local government would have been a nonsense. What the plotters would have known from the long history of preceding rebellions is that since they had no aristocratic support at the heart of government or even any major landowners on their side, what they needed to try was a regional, gentry-led rising in the hope of forcing James's councillors to make some concessions. It would not only have been much more likely to get off the ground, but also much more likely to achieve at least some limited success. So that's what we should be looking for in 1605. But before we do it exactly that, we should notice that there are in fact plenty of precedents for the rather ridiculous gunpowder plot as it was described by the government in 1605. Now, these much smaller scale plots that stretch from 1571 to 1603 are quite different from all the other risings and they give us plenty of clues about what was really going on in 1605. <laughs> Gunpowder plot, as the government of Robert Cecil describes it, doesn't in any way match a single one of the popular or aristocratic risings from the previous 150 years. It does, however, look very much like the small-scale plots that had appeared like a rash between 1571 and 1603. So if we want to understand the gunpowder plot, these other plots are definitely worth looking at in more detail for a moment. In 1571... And between 1583 and 1586, there was a short series of furtive conspiracies, apparently to remove the Protestant Queen Elizabeth and to replace her with the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots, James's mother. Now, Mary Stuart, 
Queen of Scots, had arrived in England in 1567, having been forced out of Scotland, leaving her baby son James as king. What followed were four small-scale and absurdly unlikely plots, known as the Rodolfi, Throckmorton, Parry and Babington plots, all apparently with backing from France or Spain. None of them came close to success. These murderous plots are all quite different from the rebellions which had gone before. All were apparently discovered beforehand by intelligencers, informants, working for Robert Cecil's father, Lord Burley, and for Sir Francis Walsingham, the Queen's secretary. In two cases, the central players, Roberto de Rodolfi and William Parry, have since been fingered by historians as double agents. It was under Burley and Walsingham in the 1580s that the use of torture by government became common. Much of the supposed evidence for these four alleged Catholic conspiracies was extracted from men suspended from manacles or stretched on the rack. Burley and Walsingham created a covert, shifting world of terror, provocation and allegation, peopled by men like Thomas Norton, Burley's man in charge of business in the House of Commons, whose other phase was as an interrogator with such an enthusiasm for torture he was popularly known as the Rackmaster General. William Wade, who was Cecil's interrogator-in-chief in 1605, had family connections with the Cecils, which went back into Henry VIII's reign. He too had been part of Walsingham's intelligence outfit from 1581 and was involved in the investigation of at least three of these earlier plots. Curiouser and curiouser. In fact, a clear pattern begins to emerge. It goes like this. A Catholic plot to kill or replace the monarch is discovered by the government's own intelligences. Clever people. It always has backing from France or Spain. The government publishes an official account incorporating redacted documents, usually derived from documents signed after torture. There are then state trials and executions. It's extremely difficult to decipher just how real these plots were, but historians who have studied them have had serious doubts. Stephen Olford who's written major books both on Burley and on the Elizabethan intelligences, reckons that the Rodolfi plot may in fact have been initiated by Lord Burley himself, Cecil's father. John Bossy calls Parry's execution after the Parry plot, quotes, a judicial murder and grave discredit to whoever was responsible for it. The Babington plot was at one level a trap set for Mary Queen of Scots. Walsingham's intelligences established a supposedly secret method for her to pass correspondence in the bungs of beer barrels. When that didn't produce enough evidence to convict, i.e. she didn't write anything too compromising, William Wade was paid £30 to steal papers from her rooms and arrest her secretaries. There's an old tradition that the man at the heart of the other conspiracy, the Throckmorton plot, Francis Throckmorton, retracted all his confessions at his trial because, he said, they'd been extorted under torture. As we saw at an earlier conversation at the History Café, there were more ostensibly Catholic plots in 1594 and in 1603. Although Mary Queen of Scots was now dead, they are in most other ways just the same. Evidence was fabricated or procured through torture and then used to entrap figures at court. There doesn't seem much doubt that wrapped up in all these allegations, torture and double-dealing, there were genuine threats, especially to Elizabeth, involving the French and the Spanish. There's no doubt that shady figures from the fringes of the royal court became involved. But there's equally little doubt that Burley and Walsingham, and later Robert Cecil, along with William Wade, and the rest of their questionable network of intelligences, elaborated and nurtured, and perhaps sometimes initiated or invented, these plots. 
they entrapped and tortured a string of real or alleged conspirators for their own purposes. In fact, the business of entrapment was so common and so well recognised, they even had a name for it. They called it practising. The similarities with the gunpowder plot are just too obvious to ignore. Between 1571 and 1603, there was an epidemic of small-scale Catholic plots. They turn out, when historians have looked more closely, to be a mixture of reality, fabrication and entrapment, which was stirred up and then exposed by the Cecils and their mob of informants. Now all this looks altogether too much like the gunpowder plot, but we can go much further. We can ask what the Cecils and their associates were trying to achieve through all this elaborate web of plots and deceptions. Well, that's quite straightforward. The plots between 1571 and 1586 were all followed by parliaments. Once Parliament sat, the discovery of the plot was announced and Burley's men pushed for Mary Queen of Scots to be executed and laws tightened on the Catholics, moves that Queen Elizabeth had always been reluctant to make. In the end, Burley and Walsingham got their way. Catholics faced stiffer and stiffer penalties. And in 1587, James's mother Mary was finally beheaded. John Guy, in his fine biography of Mary Queen of Scots, charts in grim detail the quotes shabby manoeuvres Burley undertook to get Mary executed, including discovering another plot, in fact a long dead and ineffectual conspiracy, and spreading false rumours that the Spanish had actually landed in Wales. At the end, Burley had Mary Queen of Scots executed hurriedly and without telling Elizabeth, in the full knowledge that it was against her wish. So the plots worked very well indeed for Cecil's dad Burley's purposes, which were mainly to push Parliament and a reluctant Queen into making life much more difficult for English Catholics. After Mary Queen of Scots' death, there was a gap. But then there were three new plots, all in 1594. This time, investigations were peremptory, confessions quickly produced and published, and alleged traitors dispatched. The last of them, as we've seen before at the History Café, clearly innocent Anglo-Portuguese physician Dr Lopez. Stephen Alford concludes that these 1594 plots were all part of the bitter contest for dominance at court between the Cecils and their most dangerous rival. Each of the three plots of 1594, he writes, was in fact a game for advantage in the visceral political contest between the Earl of Essex and the Cecils. The same pattern continued into the Earl of Essex's own rising in 1601, when the government yet again turned out its by now standard official account, blaming the rising yet again and without any basis in fact on the Catholics. And as we've seen, the same kind of thing happened all over again in 1603 with the so-called by and main plots. By this time, Lord Burley was dead, and it was his son Robert Cecil who was orchestrating the practising. In these, as in all the later plots, the driving factor was jockeying for position among court factions which were locked in a struggle for influence over the monarch. What we've been discovering is that the gunpowder plot bears no relationship at all with the genuine rebellions that have broken out in England over the previous century and a half. What we find instead is that it fits lock, stock and gunpowder barrels into the disreputable pattern of discovering secret Catholic treasons and then using them not to say elaborating, even inventing them, for political advantage, using them in particular to force Parliament to follow their Protestant agenda 
and to discredit rival court factions. The only real difference between the gunpowder plot and this long series of entrapments is that the earlier so-called plots had almost all allegedly had backing from Spain or France. But in this case we know exactly why the gunpowder plot was different. King James explicitly instructed Cecil to keep the Spanish out of it, since they had just signed a peace deal after 19 years of war. What's really surprising is that historians widely accept that the plots of the 1570s, the 1580s, the 1590s, 1601, 1603 were in lesser or greater measure entrapments and fabrications, and yet to doubt the gunpowder plot of 1605 is regarded as the preserve of amateurs and conspiracy theorists. The gunpowder plot is quite clearly the last of a long series of plots. We've already seen that Robert Cecil, just like his father before him, was blatantly using a plot, the gunpowder plot, to force his agenda through Parliament and to gain an advantage over his rivals at court. And it turns out there's much, much more where that came from, as we'll discover next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. <laughs> <laughs>